You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, hey, friends, uh, happy summer to you and uh, glad to be here with you as we continue our Summer in the Psalm series. And speaking of summer, um, a, uh, a providence has occurred to us here at Northway as we film this. And for whatever reason, on one of the hottest days that we've had so far, the air conditioning is out in this room. Uh, so we're just going to persevere. Uh, but if it looks like I'm having a heart attack, I'm not, uh, unless I'm actually having a heart attack. But uh, anyway, uh, I get to preach on Psalm 34 today, and I've been eager to share this passage with you. Uh, so as you open up to Psalm 34, uh, just so you know, as I was thinking about this passage, I came, uh, as, I, as I often do, I thought about uh, J.K. Rowling's um, Harry Potter series. And uh, it's uh, just as a young church like, like Northway is with so many 20s and 30-somethings, uh, Harry Potter is actually part of your childhood. For me, it was about two years ago that I read all seven books for the first time and just loved them. Uh, but Psalm 34 deals specifically with fear. And so I was reminded of part of this story in Harry Potter where Hermione Granger, who I think is my favorite uh, character tells us about boggarts. And what boggarts are, are little mystical creatures that actually take the shape of the thing that you fear the most. Uh, and this is what Hermione says about boggarts. She says that boggarts are shape shifters. They take the shape of whatever a particular person fears the most. And that's what makes them so terrifying. And Professor Lupin, who uh, is a great uh, hero to the to the kids, uh, actually tries to teach them how to fight these uh, boggarts. And he says, you fight them by laughing at them and by calling them ridiculous, which works uh, somewhat okay in um, a fiction. Uh, but for me, as I fight my boggarts and for you as you fight yours, um, that hardly does away with our deepest fears. Uh, because we have them. And uh, 2020 has been a year to remember uh, in terms of, I think, bringing up old and new fears for all of us. But um, I can tell you this much, um, long before the couple weeks that we have had with um, significant racial conversations being had, and long before COVID-19, and long before a tornado ever hit our church uh, last October, we were a fearful people. We were a people who battled anxiety and fear. And that's true, not only of the ministers who have walked with you, but of the ministers ourselves, that we on the regular battle fear. Our culture talks about it as well. Fear is not just something relegated to Christians. Uh, fear is something we even talk about at a young age. Uh, and so Shel Silverstein in his poem, Everything on It for Kids said this, she had blue skin and so did he. They searched for blue. Actually, let me start over. She had blue skin and so did he. He kept it hid and so did she. They searched for blue their whole world through, then passed right by and never knew. Talking about the fear of being known. Uh, Taylor Swift said that she is intimidated by the fear of being average. Woody Allen comically said that he's not afraid of death. He just doesn't want to be there when it happens. And uh, King David added his own fears into the conversation in Psalm 56, where he says this, 
My enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. And when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And I've always appreciated King David's honesty. He's talking about enemies that are eating him up uh, in terms of the fear that it brings him. And he's saying, these things are so consuming that they trample me. They overcome me. And this is the king being honest about his fears. And, um, you know, I think what's, what's interesting about fears is that uh, they can be low grade. Um, they can be that kind of hum in the back of our minds that really never go away. Um, they can be seasonal. Um, things can trigger fears. They can uh, really come out of the middle of nowhere uh, and they can eat us alive. I, uh, there's some fears I know uh, in, in my life, there have been times where I've been so overcome by fear. The only thing I need to do was to go to my room and put um, a pillow over my head. Um, because I was so overcome with fear. It's real, and it's something that you experience and I experience. And uh, I don't know who said it, but uh, they said it well, that anxiety does not rob tomorrow of its problems, but it does rob today of its strength. Um, and uh, and so we, we fight fears. That is um, part of our everyday rhythm of life. And so I think an important question for us is when we are afraid, where do we turn? What do we do? And, and how do we grow? And, uh, and fortunately, David writes a psalm for us, Psalm 34, that specifically answers these questions. And so we'd love for you to turn to Psalm 34 as we read this uh, together. Um, David, um, well, I, let me say this. Uh, I think a um, when you kind of look at a, at, a, at a theme of where we're going today, I believe kind of a, a central idea that, that leads this psalm for us is this, that um, the promises that we believe will lead to the progress we make in fighting our fears. I'll say it again. The promises that we believe will lead to the progress that we make in fighting our fears. Let me give you a little backstory on Psalm 34, okay? So David has been on the run now for several years. He's hiding from jealous Saul, King Saul. Maybe you know the story and Saul does not like David. Saul is actively trying to kill David. And so, uh, Saul, so David ends up in Gath, which ironically is Goliath's hometown, which that's not, you know, that's not good for David. He's on kind of enemy territory. And he tries to go witness protection program in Gath. And he tries to work in the fields and see, you know, hopefully nobody notices him. And uh, First Samuel tells us that he actually is noticed, uh, that people go, isn't that David over there working the fields? And what First Samuel tells us is that uh, David hears what they said, and he is much afraid. And so they bring David before King Asius because they want to use him as leverage, which is actually the right move. They're going, we have somebody who should mean a lot to you, guy, uh, a lot to, to you. And uh, so David uh, for whatever reason, pretends to be insane before King Asius. And he like uh, spits down his beard and he scratches at a doorpost and he acts like a crazy person. And King Asius comes over to uh, assess the situation and goes, ain't no chance. This is uh, King David. This guy's crazy. We got enough crazy people here. Get him out of here. Uh, and so they let David go and, uh, and he gets out of there. And then shortly after he writes Psalm 34 about that experience, 
And he writes it as an acrostic. So he goes down the Hebrew alphabet and he's actually using this poem, this song to teach people how we respond to our fears. So that's the backstory here. Now let's work through the Psalm together. Verse one, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So you think about common responses to fear, okay? So uh, truthful answer uh, when someone asks, how are you? Uh, well, I'm terrified. I'm consumed by fear. I hardly slept last night. Uh, answer you give, I'm good. I'm okay. I mean, don't worry about this stuff that's eating me alive. I'm okay, right? Because we have a tendency towards self-sufficiency. Our common response, even when we are crippled by fear, sometimes many of us, uh, some of you are just flat out honest, and I just love that about you. But for many of us, we have a tendency to go, no, I got this. I, I just believe in yourself. Think positively. You can work through this situation. You can finagle your way out of this. And what's interesting about this entire Psalm is that David, will pay no attention to the shrewdness of his plan and getting away from King Asius. He goes straight to the Lord. You see the Lord in all caps. That's Yahweh's covenant name. And you'll see it all throughout this Psalm. He goes straight to the Lord and he says, I will bless the Lord. I will bless Yahweh. I will continue to praise him. I will not be quiet in my praise of Yahweh for his deliverance. And we keep reading Verse two, he says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. You see what David's doing here? He's not, he's not celebrating his skill, his savvy, his strength, or his good fortune. Again, he's running straight to the Lord and he's saying, let the humble hear. That word humble means crouched or bowed. And, and why is it that the humble hear? Why is it so often the case that only the humble actually hear? And I think it's because there are some things that you can only see when you're really low to the ground. Um, and those of us who have experienced real deliverance like where you know the Lord helped you, um, maybe you're less inclined to swagger. And so David's saying, I have something to say and the humble will hear it, but you have to be humble to receive it. And then after that, he says, let's magnify and celebrate the name of this great God who has saved me. And then he kind of recaps the situation, verse four. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. You gotta see that the bottom is falling out in David's life. He calls himself in verse six, a poor man with troubles. And so what does he do? Verse four, he seeks the Lord. And one person said about this, this the, what's going on in the Hebrew here is that in seeking the Lord, it took energy, it took willpower, it took desperation. You see, I learned a long time ago in my life um, 
that um, the gospel is not, uh, Christianity is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. The gospel is opposed to thinking that we can merit ourselves into the grace of God, but the grace of God is not opposed to hard work. And so what David is saying is with every part of my soul, with energy, with willpower, with desperation, I sought the Lord. Uh, he invokes what James says is a prayer with faith. And, and he says in verse six, he answered me, he heard me. I prayed with everything I have and he heard me. Verse seven, he sent his angels to encamp me. And so what does David do in the face of fear? He seeks out to God with everything that he has. He puts himself completely out there and uses everything that he has at his disposal to cry out to the Lord. And then we get in verses eight through 10 to the promises themselves, because that's an important question. What are the actual promises that David believes? Verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. What does he say? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. And then he says, even the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What are the promises that David believes? What are the promises that we must believe? That the Lord is good. David is saying, taste it, see it, experience it, trust him, believe him, that there's no lack in doing that. And he says, fear the Lord. And that might feel like a weird statement or a weird expression. So let me try to make it simple for you. What like to fear something is only to say, what is great and good in your life, you will naturally fear and reverence. And that's already true. You don't have to learn. I don't have to learn to fear something because what I ultimately believe is great and good, I already fear and reverence. And what David is saying is because of the goodness of God, what is because, because of what is, what is objectively good, fear and reverence the goodness of God and his plan for your life. And then he starts to talk about these lions, which is so interesting. What about these little lions? Well, a little lion, a young lion, if you will, is um, they are the kings and the queens of the jungle. And you think about a young lion. Okay, so a young lion is probably gonna have its mom and its dad as protection. Um, and it's gonna walk around and go wherever it wants to go and do whatever it wants to do with little fear whatsoever because everybody in the jungle is terrified of an apex predator. But here's what David's saying. The lion's flaw at the end of the day is its self-sufficiency. Because for all that the lion has at its disposal, at, at its disposal, there are still times when nature does not provide for the lion everything that the lion wants. And so the lion's flaw is its self-sufficiency. And when you think about our fears, somebody said this, when you look at the things that we fear the most, a stone's throw from those fears are our desires the things that we really, really, really want in the world. So I think what David's drawing attention to 
in young lions is that they still suffer hunger and want. And so do we when unhealthy fear activates areas in our lives that we cannot control. Because what it exposes is that we are not created nor are we designed to curate every part of the story to our advantage. There are things that will overcome us. There are things we cannot control. And when that happens, we will find ourselves lacking and we will be fearful of what we cannot have. And so listen to King David, King David, who's saying, you don't control every situation in your life, but you sit before the face of the one who does. And so your remedy is not to yield to your fears, but to actually believe the goodness of God in every situation, because in believing the goodness of God, that will lead to no lack, but not believing in the goodness of God, believing in the goodness of other things, finite things are actually going to lead us. And we know this because of how irrational and crippling fear is to yield ourselves to the worship of other things is going to lead us to unhealthy situations. And we know that. And so what David's putting side by side is the fact that we don't get to control everything, but to actually have peace and to have no no lack is to believe upon the goodness of God, as opposed to trying to control every part of the situation where even the sharpest and the shrewdest of us cannot control everything in our lives. And then he goes into... Um, to dad mode, if you will. And he goes into teaching and fearing the Lord, verses 11 through 14. And he says this, he says, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? And then he gets really practical. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. David's saying, like, learn from me. Like he's saying, the fear of the Lord is more than an insurance policy on your hardest days. It's more than that. It's a lifestyle because he's saying actively believing the goodness of God will have lifestyle implications for you because you'll become more like him. Then he asks a really great question in verse 12. Do you wanna love life and see a lot of good days? Which I hope the answer for us is yes. And then he actually dives in to things that we can control, which is important. Like as much as we can't control, he says in verse 13, keep a pure tongue. Uh, In verse 14, avoid evil and seek peace. And as much as you're able to control things and to act in wisdom, David's saying is gonna lead to many good days. But beyond that, Um, he's saying that the the fear of God, like believing the promises of God actually has lifestyle implications for you because you become what you behold. And um, I think a a helpful story like this would be my grandpa. Um, My grandpa uh, passed away six years ago and uh, he was a World War II vet and raised my mom and her four siblings. And uh, there was a season of my life, especially after my parents divorced, when when I would act like a fool, my mom had this amazing trump card. And uh, that trump card was, okay, keep talking and I'm gonna call your grandpa. And it literally was like the death knell for me. I was like, mom, oh my goodness, like I will seriously become a missionary. Please don't call grandpa, please. Because I was just terrified of him. And, uh, and I was, I was scared of him. And I was scared of his discipline and his order. And um, 
this kind of standard that he called me to. And he was always correcting me. And he was always uh, pointing out things that I could do better. He was a coach by nature. And so it was just natural for him. Um, But the more that I feared my grandpa, the more I got around him, the more I started to see the active goodness in his life. And I started to experience the number of times that he bailed me out without judgment, but with mercy. And the number of times that he showered me with grace and forgiveness and forbearance and the investment that he was making eternally into my life and the way that he loved me and the promises that he called out and to the point where one of the saddest days of my life was when I couldn't have a conversation with my grandpa anymore because I loved to process anything and everything hard with him. He became my hero over time. And this was last Christmas uh, our whole family got together. And uh, afterwards I was walking out with my uncle and we were talking about my grandpa. And he said, you know, Matt, um, he said, you actually really remind me of him. And um, I, uh, I told my wife, I told Dana that that is just one of the kindest things that anybody could have ever said to me because what was happening in my life is I was becoming like the man that I beheld, the man that I feared, but ultimately reverenced because I knew that he was faithful to his word and that he called me out of something into more. And so what David is just saying is that there are lifestyle implications to the fear of the Lord. It's more than an insurance policy. It's becoming like God. And he goes further into the promises. Um, and, and this is where I'm getting to the progress. And um, like, what is it again? So the, the main idea in this passage is that the promises that we believe will lead to the progress we make. And so the promise, believe the Lord is good, taste and see will lead to the progress. But there's actually more promises here. And I wanna end our time together by reading through these, through the end of Psalm 34. He says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Promise, the promises keep coming. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Here's another promise. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Another promise, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions, verse 19, of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And so you just see through 15 through 22, promise, 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 promise. But you notice that the promise The promises are to the righteous. That word is featured many times in this passage. The promises are to the righteous. 
And I think with, with a Christian mind, you have, to, you have to reconcile this passage of promises to the righteous with what the Bible actually says about righteousness. And I think uh, those of us who are familiar with the Bible knows that Paul makes this argument in Romans 3, where he says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. But Paul's actually drawing from Psalm 14, another Psalm of David, where he continues in Romans 3, and he says, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so there's this critical question that I think jumps out at you and me that asks, how do unrighteous people have any part of these promises towards the righteous? And I think we can key in to verse 19 to see the answer. It says this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. What the psalmist is saying here, what David is saying is that the righteous person can also be a person who experiences deep affliction. And you think about Abraham, you know, long before, Dave, uh, long before Abraham ever makes this slow, agonizing walk of affliction up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac as he has heard the Lord to tell him. Long before that, he believes another promise. And that promise is God comes to an old barren couple and he says to Abraham, he says, look at the stars in the sky. You will have more sons than you see in the sky. I will make you a great nation. And Abraham believed that promise against every conceivable odd. And what we learn in Genesis is that God credits his faith to him as righteousness. So it's Abraham's faith in God and who he is that's taking him up the mountain. And Romans, Paul says this, that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised. And so when, when Abraham is overcome with the temptation towards anxiety, holding that which he cherishes most in his life, he fights his fear with faith. And what happens is he experiences an 11th hour deliverance and God spares his son and sacrifices a ram instead. But on the cross of Christ, you do not see an 11th hour deliverance for Jesus. This time, the father loses his son. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, Paul tells us, uh, David tells us in verse 19. And on the cross of Christ, the most righteous man in human history experiences the deepest kind of affliction that anyone could experience. And he's crucified. And as he's crucified, Jesus faces every assault, every lie from the pit of hell is being levied against him as he's being crucified. But Jesus is hanging on to something. Jesus, the righteous man, tasting the goodness of God is hanging on to something. What is he hanging on to? He's hanging on to the fact that he knows that God will resurrect him because of his holiness and, his, that, and that by resurrecting him, we by faith would join him and God could thereby destroy sin and death without destroying us. 
And so Jesus experiences the ultimate nightmare on the cross in his body. He experiences the nightmare of God forsakenness. He experiences the loss of relationship, the loss of presence with God as he cries out to God and God is not near and he experiences that nightmare. So on the worst day of our life, we would never have to experience that nightmare. And Jesus does that for our sake. He fights every nasty lie from hell with the promise of God, knowing that it will secure an eternal redemption for us. Verse 22, just like the Psalm promises, so much so that verse 20 is equally true for us, that he will keep all of his bones. None of them will be broken. A resurrected Christ has no broken bones and a resurrected you and I will not either. And so Jesus beholds the promises of God and he believes in the goodness of God amidst every temptation towards fear. And in doing so, his faith reckons us righteous. His life reckons us righteous to God as we believe upon the Lord. And you know what this means? You read the promise of Christ, the promise of our righteousness, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You read that righteousness now back into these verses and here's what it says. It says that our prayers will be heard, verse 15. Our enemies will be avenged, verse 15. Perpetrators of evil will one day be destroyed, verses 16 and 21. We will be delivered when we cry for help, verse 17. The Lord will save us when we are crushed and brokenhearted, verse 18. And our story will be marked by redemption and not condemnation, verse 22. Because what is true of a resurrected Christ is true of us. And the promises that we believe in the goodness of God and Jesus offering his life for us will lead to the progress we make in fighting our fears because Jesus experienced the ultimate nightmare so that we would never have to. What is absolutely true of us is what Shay talked about last, last week, that the worst case scenario for our lives is that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives until we get to be with God. And so we fight our fear with faith, these promises that are, that are true. But okay, what about the here and now? You know, go, okay, Matt, I, I appreciate all of that, but like, can you not spiritualize everything? So like, do present fears not matter? Is that what you're saying? And, and of, of course they matter. I mean, and they matter because like this Psalm 34 is about David being delivered in real time and space from a real situation. And it's necessary and important for us to ask God to deliver us real time from things. Paul does as much in 2 Thessalonians when he, when he prays that God would deliver them from evil and wicked men. So like, can you pray for present deliverance? Absolutely, and you should from challenging fears and challenging circumstances because God is delivering us from our fears. That's not question, like that's not to be questioned. He is delivering us from our fears as we believe in his promises, but we don't know all of the details. Sometimes you might have experienced this in your life. You experienced an 11th hour deliverance which encourages us to trust all the more. But as Ed Welch says, uh, sometimes he allows fears, even nightmares, but then he works a bigger deliverance through it. And he uses adversity to replace the affection that underlies our fears 
with truer and better affection for God. I found out um, this week that one of my spiritual heroes, uh, Tim Keller, has pancreatic cancer. And uh, he has gone uh, out and asked for people to pray with him. And so I will gladly join the masses of people that are praying for uh, a hero to many of us. And here is my prayer. And I learned this several years ago. Here is my prayer. My prayer is that God would deliver Tim Keller from pancreatic cancer and that he would miraculously heal him so that uh, Tim and his wife, Kathy, don't have to worry about it anymore at all whatsoever. But here's what we know, okay? God is either going to deliver Tim Keller from pancreatic cancer, or God is going to deliver Tim Keller into an eternal state of glory. And either way, he will be delivered. And that is the promise that we experience. Sometime that deliverance is felt real-time booing our faith. And sometimes it's the greater deliverance that we'll all experience, but either way, we will be delivered. So how do we fight our boggarts? How do we fight our fears? They come in every direction. How do we fight them? We hang on to the unbelievable, undeserved promises of the gospel, and we taste and see, we believe in the goodness of God in all things. These promises will lead to our progress. We will fight our fears with faith. And the Lord has promised us that perfect love casts out fear. 